Okay. Okay, we're going to be going in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 today. Um, I'm going to start out with a very general review. I'm not going to go each week like I've been doing. But uh, 1 Timothy is a handbook for local church. And I was looking over what I was going to cover. And when we got into this teaching rotation, we said, you know, we'll go about four weeks at a time. We don't want you to get tired of every teacher and that can happen I know so I was looking and I thought okay what do I do I said I would do first the first and second chapters of first Timothy and I want to be a man of my word so do I squeeze the entire chapter into one lesson there's only 15 verses or do I split it into two verses so I sought wise counsel I have a spoiler alert Bennett's going to be your next teacher so I go to him and I said, is it okay if I spread this out a couple more weeks? Because I passed my four-week limit last week. I'm on borrowed time. <clears throat> and uh, he, he said no. So then I was talking to the second pastor, Timothy. And uh, he pointed out that the second part of the second chapter, you kind of want to have some leeway for, for back and forth and talking and, and input. So, um, I'm going to let you know, I did go into, into the first verse a little bit last week, but I'm going to go back and, and just a, a slight overview, maybe, maybe a different angle to it. But first, I want to read you a quote from the Honorable J.C. Ryle, and it's about prayer. He titled this, The Never-Ending Passport to Our Prayers. Jesus Christ has <clears throat> opened the way to God the Father by the sacrifice he made for us on the cross. The holiness and justice of God need not frighten sinners and keep them back. Only let them cry to God in the name of Jesus. Only let them plead the atoning blood of Jesus, and they shall find God upon the throne of grace willing and ready to hear. The name of Jesus is a never-failing passport to our prayers. In that, man, in that name, a man may draw near to God with boldness and ask with confidence. God has engaged to hear him. Reader, think of this. Is not this encouragement? So let's go ahead and turn to uh, the, begin the first seven verses of the second chapter of First Timothy. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this was appointed, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So the first verse, first of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. I pointed out last week at the end of the class, first of all, it tells us this is the utmost importance. Paul's putting an exclamation point on this, if you will. Remember, this is a handbook for the church. And there's two things that I pointed out that I think dignify what Trinity Baptist Church is. Does anyone remember what those two things were? Prayer and scripture. And I think if you are, we talked about Orthodox Christianity, if you go into an Orthodox Christian church, not Eastern Orthodox or Western, someone that teaches Orthodoxy, it is the Bible and only the Bible. Today, it would probably be called a conservative church. They will be marked by prayer and scripture. So, how should we pray for all people? I found this interesting. Paul didn't give an example of a prayer. Remember, the, the disciples came to Jesus and said, so how do we pray? He goes, well, our Father, which, and he gave them an outline of a prayer. This isn't even so much of an outline. He gave us four things. Supplications. And supplication is for the averting of evil. So I looked at the definition. Supplication is the action of asking or begging something earnestly or humbly. There's a difference between supplication and prayer. It's also listed before prayer. And I think that both of these together show the importance that Paul is putting on supplication. We need to earnestly approach the throne for the end to evil. Prayers. So there's supplications, prayers. Prayers are for the obtaining of good. As important as the need to end evil is, we also need to be in prayer for the gaining of good. We have always needed good, and we should be in prayer that there is more good in the world. Intercession. Intercession is for the intercession. Praying for others. This implies that whom we pray for are not in prayer for themselves. We need to pray for others, but we also need to pray for ourselves. Now, I had a hard time with this as a, as a baby Christian. I'm like, that seems selfish to go before God and say, I, me, my, and have those, those personal pronouns there. But God wants everyone to come to him in prayer. And, and so there's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. Uh, if we are boldly taking our neighbors, brothers, and sisters to God in prayer, why not pray for ourselves? And then Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for mercies already received. 
I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but a lot of times I find myself falling back on thankfulness in prayer, especially in a corporate corporate way here. I'm, you know, just got done saying a prayer, and sometimes words fall short, but you can always fall back on that thankfulness. You know, you're praying for this person, you're praying for that person, and then all of a sudden, for whatever, and I'll admit, it's my ADD sometimes. Oh, squirrel. You know, and I get distracted. And Tim, First Timothy talked about that in, in his prayer, about you know staying focused. It happens, but it's, this is an easy fallback for us. Thank you, God. Thank you. There's nothing wrong with giving God thanks more than once. We need to give glory to God in all things. Giving thanks is giving glory because if you thank him for something, then you're acknowledging his sovereignty. So Matthew Henry had a summary sentence. Yeah, I'm quoting him again. Um, <clears throat> at the end of, of this verse, and he said, the design of the Christian religion is to promote prayer and the disciples of Christ must be a praying people. So then we moved on to the next verse. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. <clears throat> J. Vernon McGee. I can't use his, his uh, accent, but I'll, I'll tell you what he said. He said, pray that there might be freedom to live as believers should and freedom to witness to the lost. Again, pray that there might be freedom to live as believers should and freedom to witness to the lost. The kings mentioned here were heathens. They were enemies of Christianity. So, why should we pray for them? I have a bold line there. That's a natural question. Why should we pray for, for those who are, who are over us politically and, you know, those that we actually vote, vote into office? It's for the public good that there's a civil government. We need to pray for their good and well-being. We're under them in a civil society. In the last few years, there have been questions about if something happened behind the scenes to get any particular candidate into office. And there's been accusations both ways, being thrown back and forth. I can guarantee you there was a factor that determined the winning uh, person to win an election. R.C. Sproul, you've heard me quote him before. You'll hear me quote him again. He says, <clears throat> there is not a molecule in the universe that is not outside the control of a sovereign God. So we can pray for this candidate to win. You can donate to, to his campaign. You can pray for him and pray that the other guy doesn't win. But God's going to choose. Now, is God going to choose for abundance for a country? Or is he going to choose 
judgment upon the country. But I have to agree with that because I think of what the Israelites wanted when they wanted a king just like the other nations. They got specific and he gave it to them. Mm -hmm. And I just read this morning how it all ended. First Samuel 21. Didn't end well for him. I was thinking, Chris, along why do we pray? Why why should we offer such supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings? He gives us the reason there in the second verse that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. I'm not sure I've ever thought of that. I know it's been there, but I never paid attention to it. Uh, if we want to live a peaceful and quiet life, pray for your leaders. Because when you don't pray for them, what do you do? That's why I had to stop watching Sean Hannity and all these other guys. Because it gets me all churned up inside. And I should pray for them, and I can live peaceful. So I don't really give a rip who's in office. I mean, I do care. But I'm not going to get my panties in a wad over it. Right. Because God's in control. And so if I pray for him, I don't have to worry about it. Hey, who cares what he does or doesn't do? God is in control. I did not talk to Bud or Tim about the lesson, but my next point, B. <laughs> Sorry, I told No, 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 it was perfect. Have there always been good kings and judges? No. <laughs> we had good kings and judges? In scripture, we can go back to judges, yep, yep. as Tim was saying. And there were very few judges that we could categorize as good, let alone godly. Yes, you can have someone that's good and can be a heathen. Yep. I started pointing out certain cultish denominations, but I won't go there. Um, because they're very, very good people. They're nice people. They're kind people. Because it, their, their belief is built on works. And so if they're a good person, they're going to make it to heaven or make it to the next heaven. or Anyway, so um, then... Yeah. Quick, quick question. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this particular verse is, you know, kind of raises the, the question for me about how... How should those Christians think about, and what are your thoughts on it, you know, um, our level of involvement in political activities like civil disobedience, protests, um, is, you know, should Christians respond in that way in their life or, or not? How should, how should they think about that? I, is that, and is that what, what, what I'm leaning on is to what point you can make a protest, it's, it's legal, and I think that it's okay to make petitions. You know, we make petitions to God just like we can also make petitions to our government. And if, if it's involving the murder and butcher of unborn babies, I think that there's some, 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 something there. If it's, do we teach certain things to kids in class? that is totally wrong, has no business being in school, I have a hard time with that. You know, to make 
a public stand and, and march. You know, that's what I'm picturing is, is marching for that. So I don't know, but Carol, please bail me out. <laughs> There's not a one, one size fits all on this. Everybody's gotta, gotta act according to what God prods them to do. And I look at these are opportunities for lights to be in very dark places. I mean, so obviously you, you know, you look at, I, I remember being in Vienna shortly after the end of the Cold War, and I've stayed with the missionary family there. I'm like, what do they say, you know? Because Austria welcomed Hitler in with flowers, you know? And, and they knew what was going on, and they did nothing, right? So, I mean, maybe they prayed hard. Nobody knows, but they don't want to talk about it. So you think about, you know, just the, the things going on and how when the exiles went into captivity in Babylon and said, pray, you know, Wish well for your culture where you're at for this time. You know, I'm doing something there. And he puts people in power. So for me, I think it's it's very good to get involved as much as we can. We are in this world, but not of it. We don't want to be like the Amish and just seclude ourselves away and protect our, our little ones or whatever. The, the culture affects all our kids, as I've seen, like the direction California is going and how it's adversely affecting my family. Like, I personally not only I want to do more than pray, I want, I want to be involved, but that's not for everybody. Everybody has a different spiritual gift. Everybody has a different calling. And I think God puts us in places like Joseph and Daniel in key places at key times for key purposes. And how can we even be aware if we're not ourselves personally involved? But it's not for everyone. We need the prayer warriors the most that are in their closets on their face crying out to God. And then we need the people that are speaking the truth that affect people around them and change hearts and minds. And I, you know, it, I think the culture battle is very important. Um, you know, to just not let it go. Like to, you know, we we know God's in control, but He can use us. He can use our failures. He can use our successes. He can give us the words to speak and 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 make changes. I, yeah, I, I feel pretty strongly about that. Yeah, I. Uh, for me, it's just always been a. And again, I'm not saying a. This is something I've always thought about in my mind. When you read this, you know, Timothy, you know, Paul says here to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, um, and you know, does does certain levels of political involvement sort of work against what that instruction is? And then when I read in First Timothy and Second Timothy, for example, the church was being persecuted there uh, culturally. And Peter gives no instruction whatsoever about what they should be doing within the culture to change the government or to change policies. He simply explains to them how they are to think and how they are to live amidst the persecution they're facing. I've just always, you know, been kind of torn of how what we've seen expressed historically and currently with what the Bible actually teaches and expresses in certain, particularly in First Timothy, I mean in First uh, Peter, Second Peter, where you had a church that was greatly being persecuted um, and yet seemed to be given very different uh, instructions. Um, than that. I don't know. We, we have a culture that's targeting our children in unspeakable evil ways behind, you know, mm -hmm. that I think it, Deserves to be spoken out for the that parents don't even know what they're what's being shoved on their children's throats right. and, and so on. But there is nothing new under the sun because during we lived in France and during the Huguenot period, one of the ways the Roman Catholic Church sought to influence and move their agenda for forward 
and they were in cahoots with the government became everybody knew that nobody wanted to admit it but it was happening one influenced the other <coughs> the king had a religious counselor who was an envoy of the Pope <laughs> um, but the thing was is that the Huguenots they realized that the Roman Catholic Church was gunning for their kids because there's a saying in France that says if we can have your kids from zero to seven we have them for life mm -hmm. and so if they could inculcate the, their cultural view their religious opinions and convictions then they knew they had them so the point was is that what did the Huguenots do? Well, they developed catechisms to teach their children and how to, how to defend themselves ideologically from those that were trying to brainwash them in another direction. And it, it's interesting to, to study that whole thing. But I was saying there's two, there, there was, as you were talking, uh, Carol, there's two, there's two things we can't conflate when we think about individual commands to believers and what is the mission of the church. I think in our day and age, um, I'm just thinking of Jared Falwell and the religious right, um, that I think we have to be cautious as a church that we stay on mission. What does God want the church to do? What does God put the church in place for? And then there is then the individual responsibility of the individual believer. How do they function? I don't think personally that it's right for the church to be involved in politics, per se. Uh, I don't believe, and you won't hear it from me if you hear me speak at your pulpit, I'm not going to you know, endorse a particular political party or candidate or whatever. I don't think that's the preacher's responsibility or domain. But as individuals, I will fight to the nth degree that you have the right to, you know, mm -hmm. stand up for what is right. And obviously, you have to work within the confines of what our government allows for protest and disagreement with what is happening. Now, those things, those uh, liberties, uh, are being limited lately. You know, if you're if you speak up for a particular point of view, you're going to get beat up, shot down, mm -hmm. shouted down, run out of town, yelled at, thrown in jail, whatever they're going to do to you. But we should function as believers, as good, upright citizens. And Paul makes that point in Romans very clearly, yes. that we need to be responsible citizens. But to stand up for the truth, speak right. up for what's right in our community, and have a moral accountability mm -hmm. in that area. So there is a difference between what the church can do and ought to do and what the individual believer is. And we need Sometimes that gets confused. Right, right. Carol, and I. I just, so I totally agree. That's why we have different spiritual gifts. And we have the people that are, are equipped mm -hmm. to, to get out there and uh, to quote Churchill, all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. You know, that's mm -hmm. where. But yeah, the church needs to be discipling, training, focusing on us. And then God calls us to what yes. he has us to do for his purpose. I'll be brief, and so I'll probably leave out some things for better understanding. But number one, I've heard a priest that we want to be more like Jesus. And number two, it's okay to hate sin. And number three, my confession is to be more like Jesus. Every now and then, I am a little bit urged 
to turn over the money changers' tables. Mm -hmm. To be more like Jesus, to say it's time to stop this. So we have a desire for our leaders to be godly. And so that's the goal as citizens. So we should be praying for, for, our, uh, for our leaders. So our duty as Christians can be summed up in two words. Can anyone think of what those two words are? Godliness and honesty. Godliness. It's a vertical word. It's a worshiping of God. Worshiping is not just what we do Sunday morning at 1045. We should be living our lives in worship to a holy God. Godliness is living in good conduct toward God, just like the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Remember, we've talked about this a lot. The first few commandments were a vertical relationship to God. The second part of the Ten Commandments was a horizontal relationship to man. So that's where honesty comes in. Honesty is the good conduct toward all men. So we sum that up. You've got four lines there, but they, they repeat it's okay. To have godliness, you have to be honest. And if you are honest... It leads to godliness. Next verse. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Once again, just as Tim pointed out, why does Paul keep saying God our Savior? This is the second time he's done this just in what I've been teaching. And I haven't been able to find it out yet. It's something that when Tim said, why, why would he point, that, point it out that way? Anyway, praying for all of our leaders leads to a peaceable life, which in turn leads to our godliness being pleasing to God. This is the will of God. This is the will of God. Another note of godliness and honesty would be made here. There was worship of God in the Old Testament that was not pleasing to God. That you can worship God and it's not pleasing so, if you're doing it with godliness and honesty, then your worship will be pleasing to God. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth? God's desire is the salvation of all. God's desire is the salvation of all. This is why we should be praying for all people. God desires all people to be saved. And this is very much a human understanding of God's desire for all to be saved. If it truly were God's desire for every single person to be saved, then the way would not be narrow. There's a train of thought that all people go to heaven. This is called universalism. And it comes from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke. Matthew 7, 14 says, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Next verse. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. The subject is the previous sentence, not the verse. previous sentence is God. I point that out because the verse begins with four, and 
Not to get too much into grammar, but it's very important when you're reading your Bible. That's pointing back to God. And uh, the next few words fly in the face of a lot of those whom Tim, Tim, who Timothy was preaching to. He was charged with protecting the church from heresy. And the church was coming to Christianity from polytheism and polytheistic society. And so for, for Paul to say there is one God, it would be shocking to those who were hearing it. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to be jumping some of this, and I'm sorry. But one of my favorite theological words is hypostatic union. When I learned that, I thought, wow, that sounds, all it is, it means fully God and fully man. This is why God can, or this is why Jesus can stand in the position of mediator between man and God. I looked up the definition of mediator. You can learn a lot just by turning to your dictionary and learning what a word means that you just read. And I looked for synonyms, and all of them were as if two parties were having a dispute. I tried to think of the relationship between us and God when we go to him in prayer. And I can't think of anything close on this side of, of eternity that's close to a real relationship that we have. Both sides, when I go to God, he and I are both looking for the same outcome. That's not what happens when you go to a, to a legal mediator. I have a friend that, that used to be a judge, and, and he now hires himself out to be a mediator and these parties are coming in and they're arguing over, you know, this, this group wants $10 million and this group wants $20 million and he has to figure out, you know, no one can come up with, huh, 15, you know, but that's not, that's not the good for both of them. Only when we go to God, is it looking for the both, for the best for both of us. So next verse, who gave him as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus gave himself as a ransom. I was listening to a hymn this morning. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. His name. Okay. The third verse or fourth verse, it's it. And I'm, I'm going to butcher the word, so I'm not going to quote it. But it said, when we're in heaven with the ransomed. When we're in heaven with those that God has laid his life for. Um. We are prisoners of sin, and there's only one perfect person who was also God could pay that ransom. The fact that he paid that ransom puts himself into the position of mediator. Matthew Henry, once again, he died to work out a common salvation in order hereunto he put himself into the office of mediator between God and man. A mediator supposes a controversy. Sin had made a quarrel between us and God. Jesus Christ is a mediator who undertakes to make peace, to bring God and man together in the nature of an umpire or arbiter, a days man who lays his hands upon, upon who lays his hands upon both. Days man, D-A-Y-S hyphen M-A-N. What's so I turned to my dictionary. It's an umpire. 
it's just someone that, that decides what's, you know, so he is, he's sitting in that place. Then it said at the proper time, and we can turn to first Peter verse one, chapters 10 through 11 concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Paul is saying that the Old Testament spoke of this salvation. This isn't something that just came out of the blue. Salvation was being taught from the beginning of time. God showed grace and mercy to Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the last verse, we actually made it. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is pointing out again that he's ordained as a preacher and an apostle to preach to everyone. Mark 16, 15 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Jesus had, has told us, to go to all ends of the earth to spread the gospel. Here, Paul's putting another exclamation point on that fact that we are to preach to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. There's that old joke. There's three things. There, people are one of three things. You either can count or you can't. The, here he's saying there's two people. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. And we're to preach to every single one of them. And so, as a summary, this is, once again, we're looking at the handbook for the church and is speaking to ministers. Ministers must preach the truth, what they apprehend to be so, and they must believe it themselves. They are, like our apostle, to preach in faith and verity, and they must also be faithful and trusty. The church handbook is instructing the pastor here that the, pre that the minister must preach in faith and believe what he is preaching. He must preach in faith and believe what he is preaching. Any very quick comments before I pray? Yeah, I'd like to say that uh, this passage, verse 2, is uh, ties in exactly with what Peter was teaching in 2 Peter. If you look at it, it says we're supposed to pray for kings and all in high places that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. What has God provided us with? Everything for life and godliness. Mm -hmm. They're both together here at the same time. Is it possible to preach something you don't believe? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, people, do it, people do it in debate class. Aren't you given two subjects? Okay, here's the subject. You take that side and you take that side. And you don't have a choice. You have to sit there and, and convince everyone that you truly believe that. Yeah, I think people stand in pulpits every single Sunday and preach what they don't believe. Did you know that it was, it's not a new problem? Does anybody know Richard Baxter? Yeah. He wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. The whole first chapter of that book is addressed to the unbelieving clergy of his day. Because you're up in the pulpit preaching, but you have no faith. You don't believe a thing you say. And he was actually evangelizing the preachers of the day with his first chapter. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, wow, nothing new. Yeah. 
precious Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your teachings. And Father, we pray that uh, this can uh, be raised to you as, as uh, holy worship. We pray that we can be godly and honest to our fellow man. And Father, we pray that uh, you will bless the, the following time in worship. We pray for the worship team. We pray for Pastor uh, Tim, Tim as he uh, preaches to us. And, and we pray, pray for all who preach. And, and we pray that you would be glorified in it all. And may we stay focused on you and you alone. We pray it all in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.